The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. This week, I'll speak with gold and silver analyst Michael Ballinger of Stakeholder Gold, SRC on the TSX Venture, and SKHRF in the U.S. And I'll speak to Michael about market trends and their Ballarat Gold property in the Yukon. I'll talk with University of British Columbia professor Dr. Marcelo Vega about cleaning up toxic tailings resulting from artisanal mining, etc. Giannis Sitos, president of Gold Source Mines, GSX on the TSX Venture, and GXSFF in the U.S., enlightens us about this company's fast track to gold production in Guyana. And Dr. Brad Thompson of Oncolytics Biotech, ONC on the TSX, and ONCYF in the U.S., is countering a number of cancers. Join me now for a conversation with Michael Ballinger, Chairman of the Advisory Committee for Stakeholder Gold Corporation, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SRC.V and in the U.S. as SKHRF. Stakeholder Gold is conducting exploration on its 100% owned Ballarat Gold property located 120 kilometers southeast of Dawson City in the White Gold District of the Yukon. Originally trained during the inflationary 1970s, Michael Ballinger is a graduate of St. Louis University, where he earned a Bachelor of Science in Finance and a Bachelor of Art in Marketing before completing postgraduate work at the Wharton School of Finance. With more than 30 years of experience as a junior mining and exploration specialist, as well as a solid background in corporate finance, Ballinger's adherence to the concept of hard assets allows him to focus the practice on selecting opportunities in the global resource sector with emphasis on the precious metals exploration and development sector. Mike, welcome to the program. Nice to have you on. Thank you very much, Ellis. Thank you for having me. Now, I just did an opinion piece this week where I suggested to our audience that anyone who can afford to risk and possibly lose their investment collect a nice basket of junior mining gold and silver stocks because this may be the biggest gold run that we've ever seen, making anything previous to this look very small. What are your thoughts? Well, first of all, I heard your piece yesterday and I thought it was spectacular. I think I messaged you and told you that it basically embodied everything that I've been saying, largely incorrectly, I should add, for the last five years. In that time frame in which gold had a, a severe correction, which I have identified as a carbon copy of the 1974 to 1976 correction, because I got into the industry in 1977, I was fortunate enough to chum around with a lot of the old timers that had gone through the 1960s metals rush. That was a different type of rush that was based on discoveries in Canada that were made, as such as Kid Creek in 1963. But the 1970s, it was completely different than anything they'd seen before. Where we are today is I think we just completed from March of 2011 till January 19th of 2016, a similar type of correction, which uh, was almost the same in terms of amplitude. It was a, roughly a 45 to 50% correction from the top. That was 1920 intraday in uh, August of 2011 to the uh, low on December the 4th, approximately of last year. 
at the level of 1,045. The oddest thing happened in January because the metal price had obviously bottomed. But in the first couple of weeks of January, as everything was correcting and as oil was causing a lot of sovereign problems with the wealth funds, a very large and very prominent sovereign wealth fund out of Europe liquidated two to three billion dollars of the mining stocks primarily gold mining stocks, in a three-day period. And that actually was what took the Huey down to a new low. We rebounded incredibly strongly off that low. And volumes on the ETFs, the two main ones that I follow are GDX and GDXJ. Volumes are about five times normal in the two months. And on a weekly basis, they were five times normal. And there's a great expression that I, I learned about 35 years ago, and that is volume precedes price. And when you see this kind of volume moving into anything, especially when it did respond on the upside, it's a pretty powerful signal that you're on the right side of the trade. We've seen some very decent volume and also an increase in price lately. Are we going to see a contraction of sorts and then a, a wild market again? About two weeks ago, I came out and gave my long-term, intermediate-term, and short-term forecast for gold, and I pounded the table saying that on a long and intermediate-term basis, I think we're in the biggest bull market. There's no words to describe the ultimate pricing structure for gold and silver mining companies and the prices of those two precious metals. What I base it on is the main thing is from 2009 until current, the globe led by our ingenious central bankers and policymakers at the political level have manufactured $57 trillion worth of new currency units. It doesn't matter whether it's US dollars or euros or Canadian dollars or Venezuelan whatevers. Currency units have been created to the tune of $57 trillion. And that seems to be and appears to be locked in the balance sheets, either the shadow balance sheets or or the off-balance sheets of a lot of the big banks. I look at that as a large mountain of gasoline-soaked rags and kindling and timber and dried wood. And I think money velocity is turning here. And I think the money velocity is the butane lighter that's going to touch itself to that mound of $57 trillion of the kindling. So you're suggesting, or I'm extrapolating from what you said, a, a coming currency collapse. Do you think that'll touch the dollar? Well, it's all relative. It depends on what prism you're looking through to observe the inflationary impact or the currency collapse. If you're measuring currency collapse strictly in U.S. dollars, then the inverse of that would be rallies in the euro and the yen and the Canadian dollar and every other currency on the planet, the Mexican peso. I guess I should have been more specific. I'm talking about the reverse, actually. If those foreign currencies collapse, can we see a stronger dollar? And then how will that affect gold? Well, there has been a strong correlation between a strong dollar and a weak precious metals market. My argument has always been, though, that you have to look at the largest creditor nation on the planet. And keeping in mind, of course, that many of my dear friends are American residents, and I was educated in St. Louis, Missouri from 72 to 76. I have a very great fondness for my American friends. And and when I give you this comment that the problem right now is that because of military commitments, your country is essentially broke. Canada is no better. But what has happened is that because of the spin that they've put on things, nobody's going to ever believe that the American government or the American consumer, shall we say, is or American citizen is in worse shape than somebody from the Eurozone. The only way that'll ever become proof in the eyes of the world is when the USS Nimitz pulls into Gibraltar to fill up and they don't take the credit card. My argument has always been that each currency, in terms of its purchasing power, is in a race to the bottom. And since about the middle of 2014, when oil started to decline, the U.S. dollars reigned supreme. It has been king dollar, and everything else looked horrid. But in the prior two or three year period, we had pretty sharp rallies in the euro, and, and the yen was better, and the dollar was weak. So it all comes down to purchasing power. Every single currency on the planet, depending on whose inflation numbers we want to use, every currency around is losing purchasing power. Haven't you seen a decoupling between the price of precious metals and currency lately, though, especially the U.S. dollar? 
Yes. What happened, I think, in the January to March rally, that portfolio managers around the planet suddenly came to the recognition that the stock markets of the planet, whether it's the euro zone or whether it's North American exchanges or Latin American exchanges, stocks have largely become a function of central bank whims. You know, when you see members of the Federal Reserve, the U.S. Federal Reserve, coming on national TV, financial channels every week to week and a half, and have got every portfolio manager and trader on the planet hanging off their every word, and actual algorithms analyzing the word clouds that these people use, I think it's a sign that things have gotten a little out of whack. And I think that's what portfolio managers responded to. The days of chasing Netflix or Amazon or pick your favorite momentum stock of the world, I think that fell out of favor in February and March. And I think people realize that after five years of, I have a, a euphemism I use, and that is that this last five years was like a five-year root canal without the benefit of Novocaine. And that's where we are right now. I mean, we're coming off that. Whenever you come out of a, an extended period of pain like that, the absence of pain feels like euphoria. And that's what we just had in the metals market the last couple of months. It was an absence of agony and a return of normalcy. It wasn't euphoria. It was just a, a revaluation off an extremely undervalued condition, which the mining stocks got to. On price to book, price to earnings, price to cash flow, market capitalization per ounce of gold. The gold miners had never, in all the period, and I go back in my research to the 1950s, and I couldn't find any period of time when they were priced more cheaply, right back to the inception of the Barron's Gold Index. So it was an opportunity beyond belief. I could see where gold and silver would be a safe haven investment for the next two or three years, but beyond that, is it really safe? That's a really good question. It's one that has not yet been asked me. By answering that question, I almost am forced to step over the line of where I sit in terms of, I don't believe that it's necessary or required to look at much more than three to five years down the line, because there's a lot of things that can change in that time frame. In the old days, long-term investment was what we were trained to believe in and to give advice on, because that seemed to have been in the 1970s. That was the way that big investors made lots and lots and lots of long-term money. They bought really good companies and let them grow, kept an eye on management. But since the interventions of government, and my favorite book for anyone that is trying to figure out where we are within the long-range cycle for, for the Western world, just go back and read Ayn Rand's 1957 book, Atlas Shrugged. That's where we are right now. We've got government intervening in the affairs of business, and that never ends well. To answer your question, when you do step over that line, now you get into the, this whole discussion is, do you want a cabin up in the mountains with 10 years of food stored in the basement and guns? And as the lady in McAvity used to say, it was years ago, he used to say, if you're a gold bug and you're looking for $10,000 an ounce gold, he says, be careful what you wish for, because if we're at $10,000 an ounce gold, I really don't want to even fathom a guess as to what living conditions are like out there. There's going to be a lot of very disenfranchised people that aren't very happy while you're luxuriating in the fact that you owned 200,000 ounces of gold in that hyperinflationary period. You better have $200,000 worth of ammunition and guns if you're luxuriating in that sort of a backdrop as well. Why are you all in with stakeholder gold? Let's start with the reason I am with stakeholders. I don't want to be in countries where I wake up tomorrow morning and the government has changed and the legislation that arrives on a silver platter with that new government reaches down deep into your right pocket and removes your wallet, your checkbook, and your watch. I don't want that. And there's too many places around the world where you can say that it's politically stable and friendly to the mining business, but actually is not. North America is the best place to do business. And then within North America, you've got areas, for example, of Canada, which I still view as the number one place to invest in mining companies and to explore in the world. And within that, I think that the Fraser 
Fraser Institute, which is a big Canadian think tank group, have rated Canada's Yukon territories as the most highly prospective geologically. And it certainly is in the top 10 in terms of its friendliness to mining and exploration through the existence of grant programs. And they bend over backwards to provide power and all kinds of accommodation to anybody trying to find new wealth, new resources, um, copper, lead, zinc, gold, silver. And let's not forget, of course, that the old adage that is used by explorers and prospectors is the best place to look for a new gold discovery is in the shadow of a head frame of a major mine. So what you have to do is you'll have to look at the Yukon as a prospective area, which has already been ranked prospective and been the site of a lot of very, very big mines despite its remoteness. And then you, it just brings you back to the sex appeal and the romance of the Klondike Gold Rush of 1897 to 1902. You know, 14 million ounces taken out by sourdoughs by panning streams in one of the largest gold rushes on the planet since the streams were coming up elevation. They were coming from hills. And I don't mean to get really corny. Is there gold in them via hills? Well, a company which I've been recommending and owned for about three years now, first found out about it in 2010, it has just passed positive feasibility. Its name is Kamenak Gold Corp. Its property, the coffee property, is about 20% explored. They've just delivered a positive feasibility study. They have a cash cost of production under 700 bucks an ounce U.S. It has been recommended by virtually every analyst I know that visits it, realizes it's a world-class mine. They've got 5 million ounces. They've got 1.8 million measured and indicated. They got 3.4 million inferred. Getting back to stakeholder, lo and behold, eight kilometers to the north of that, with known gold-bearing soils and trenches existing on the project, and it's a big property. And with Kamenak's newly announced road going through the eastern portion of our property all the way to Dawson City, Stakeholder Gold has got the Ballarat property sitting there, eight kilometers north of the coffee property with known gold-bearing mineralization on it. And just to give you an idea of how you enhance your odds in something like this, the prospector that delivered the coffee property to Kamenak was the 2011 prospector of the year. Sean Ryan has taken one advisory board position with Stakeholder Gold, and that's the one that I created for Stakeholder back in 2013. And and Sean and I are now the only two members on the advisory board. And he is our advisor in the Yukon to stakeholder and has given his both thumbs up to the Ballarat project in terms of its prospectivity. No inferred resources are measured and indicated yet. It's too early. But that's why the stock's only 30 cents and not $1.60 like Kamenak. Kamenak has been, been a joy to watch this thing run. It was discovered by Rob Carpenter's group back in 2008 or 9. Since then, uh, Aberard Diamonds, uh, now then Harry Winston. Uh, Gren Thomas's daughter, Ira, is now the CEO. And she's an extremely capable uh, young lady. She runs it. You've had investment in the, the two major investors. Of note of recent days have been Ross Beattie and the Lundeen family. Stock's gone from about 75 cents in, in around the first week of December and just traded up to 160. And I've been on the record as saying that I don't think Kamenak will be around for another six months. It's too cheap relative to the property. It's too cheap relative to the feasibility study and too cheap relative to the jurisdiction that they're in, which is rated by the Fraser Institute, one of the most enviable mining and exploration jurisdictions on the entire planet. Kamenak gets taken out, knowing management of stakeholders I do, and the people, the team that they're assembling, and there will be more announcements to that effect in upcoming days, they have a great team, they have a great bunch of people, and they got a great property, starter property in Ballarat, and they're looking to acquire a lot more along the way. So we can see a similar 
trajectory, potentially, with stakeholder that we've seen with Kamenak. Yes, it all comes down to corroboration by the guy that has got, let's face it, Sean Ryan was the original Yukon discovery of 2009, which was Underworld, which Ken Ross took over for $147 million. What's called the Golden Saddler White property was Sean Ryan's. His second success was the coffee property or Kamenak. I think his third success, at least, you know, I'm biased, of course, he didn't come onto the stakeholder advisory board, you know, knowing what he knows about the coffee project and the Golden Saddle, which got taken out by Ken Ross, he's not going to come on to Valorat if he doesn't think there's at least a reasonably high potential for success uh, of a geological nature. 30 cents or so Canadian is not bad for a company that really hasn't jumped through the hoops that it's about to jump through in. Give us a look at what we may see as far as news. We've got a budget that's been provided to us by Sean's company, and I urge you all to go to groundtruthexploration.com, which is Sean's wife's company. Just in terms of Ground Truth's advances in technology, in exploration and development up in the Yukon, in the last five years, their research and development work has reduced the cost of exploration to 20 cents on the dollar. It's come down 80%. And we have a budget from them. We have a working capital position now of roughly $700,000, the company does. And the budget for Ballarat to do all of the soil analysis, there's three things that have to be done. You have to do, firstly, a very disciplined and a very detailed, using grid analysis, soil sampling program. And in the old days, that was labor intensive. But now Sean's technology, he uses track-mounted technology to take the soils by remote control. It's like watching a mini bulldozer go up a cliff, but with sampling tools attached to it, and it's all run and guided by GPS. You'll see all of this on the website, which is groundtruthexplorations.com. That's the first thing. Then once you've analyzed your soils, which you can do in real time, and upload it to our geologists at stakeholder in the afternoon or evening, they then make recommendations, and they'll come back in with what is called a GT probe, and the GT probe work will basically take soil samples with a patented drill, which basically punches down about three meters, gets the upper layer of bedrock and determines whether there's gold-bearing mineralization on the spot with the benefit of what is called an XRF machine, which can confirm it on site, which means you don't have to send it to a lab and wait three weeks or four weeks for a resilient real-time results back to the management group that evening or the following morning, which means the time to move from prospect to discovery is accelerated from two full seasons up in the Yukon to three weeks. So we're expecting to start this program and get the soils and the pro work done and then determine whether or not a what is called rapid air blast or RAB drill program is warranted because it gets expensive after that. RAB is still a fraction of what diamond drilling would be. So once we've eliminated the risk through the soils and the trenching and Sean gives us the green light on, yeah, you should do 10 RAB holes here, then the company authorizes it, in goes ground truth, they do the RAB holes and we determine whether or not that these 100 meter deep holes have confirmed the presence of a gold bearing structure. Now, once you've got the structure confirmed, you've eliminated 99.9% of the risk, which comes in the next phase, which is now you got to come back to the marketplace, raise some more money to do conventional diamond drilling, because the diamond drilling is still what's going to be recognized by the regulators in terms of 43-101 compliant resources and measured and indicated resources. But in the old days, you weren't able to de-risk a project. And now with Sean Ryan and his company, Ground Truth, we're able to to de-risk it, which means this company is de-risking shareholder participation in the company. Because we're not spending shareholder capital and shareholder dollars on what I would say is an 
appropriately high-risk ventures. We've eliminated that thanks to Sean Ryan and his new technology. Well, you're potentially saving anywhere from $1.5 to $5 million in exploration costs. That's exactly right. And that's huge. That's huge. That's what buried all the juniors in the Yukon in 2010. You know, there was lots of very good people up there, very excited, but they realized it was taking two seasons to do all the work, number one, which is like an eternity for a mining company whose share price thrives on news. And secondly, it was costing too much. So now we've eliminated the delay in news flow and we reduced the cost by 80%. So why wouldn't you, if you are so inclined to speculations of this nature, why wouldn't you take a shot on something like this? What's happening? Michael Ballinger, thank you so much for joining me today on the program. Appreciate your participation. You're welcome, Ellison. It was very kind of you to have me on your program. I've been speaking with Michael Ballinger, chairman of the advisory committee for Stakeholder Gold Corporation, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as SRC.B and in the U.S. as SKHRF. Listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com, and listen to the Ellis Mart Report in its entirety on iTunes or on the TuneIn Radio app. Find all segments of this program on our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Dr. Marcelo Vega. Dr. Vega has worked for the past 31 years as a metallurgical engineer and environmental geochemist for mining and consulting companies in Brazil, Canada, the U.S., Venezuela, Chile, and Peru. He has worked extensively on environmental and social issues related to mining. As an associate professor of the Norman B. Keeble Institute of Mining Engineering at the University of British Columbia since 1997, his research and teaching topics are focused on different topics that lead to improve the image of mining and contribute to sustainable mining communities. Dr. Vega and I will be discussing artisanal mining and solutions with regard to combating the effects of mercury and arsenic poisoning related to this traditional global practice. Dr. Vega, welcome to the program. Thank you, Alice. Thank you very much. Now, you have an extensive history in uh, education as far as the dangers of artisanal mining and mercury poisoning, and you, you've been involved for a long time with a specific interest in the environmental aspect of healthy mining. Where did this come from? Well, actually, I began in 1981 when uh, Jacques Cousteau just visited Brazil and just called attention for, at that time, their Serra Pelada was a landmark of artisanal mining in the middle of the Amazon. About 80,000 people invaded a lease of Valley. At that time, I, I was working in a research center in mining, and, and I called my attention when Jacques Cousteau started just uh, calling the attention of the public for mercury pollution. I never suspected anything about mercury pollution at that time, and I became really interested in to find out what was that. And then uh, just after his visit in 1982, the price of gold was very high at that time, and I became very interested because the artisanal mining started just spreading in the country. And then we, in 1983, around that, so we had about 1 million artisanal miners all over the place here in more than 2,000 sites in Amazon and all over Brazil. Specifically, artisanal mining involves individuals who are basically taking a, a pick to the ground and looking for rocks in ancient ways, right? Yeah, I would say this has evolved a bit, or oh, a lot probably. <laughs> the thing is that when you just call artisanal mining, this not necessarily implies that this guy is a small. Sometimes that this guy is that make $1 million per month. There's all types of artisanal Artisanal means that they're rudimentary, not necessarily they are small. That's a lot of small guys that are just doing good job and not just destroying the environment or using bad practice. Artisanal doesn't matter the size, doesn't matter the legality, doesn't matter whatever. It's just those guys that use rudimentary techniques to extract whatever. And especially gold, because gold is mined by 
50% of the 30 million artisanal miners we have in the world today. It's about 15 to 60 million guys directly involved with gold mining. And all over the place, not just in uh, developing countries. Uh, we have in the Discovery Channel a lot of shows showing Alaska gold or showing uh, Yukon gold. These guys are artisanal. They don't just follow the conventional way to do geology, to do reserves, to do engineering. They just go after the gold. And they're based on instincts, based on feelings, based on many different things there. And uh, that's what I call artisanal. Let's break it down as far as mercury is concerned. And how does it enter the earth and the streams and the water after the fact? The artisanal miners that I just used mercury in the 1700s, you know, it's a long time ago. So the Mexicans that are the, and the Spaniards, they just introduced some mercury in just to amalgamate silver, to amalgamate gold. This is not nil. But the mercury, it's a very inefficient process. That it doesn't collect. It is a traps gold or some particles of fun, fine particles of gold. But it's not very efficient. So because gold must be free, must be liberated. So this process that I usually recover about thirty percent of the gold. I usually that's what I pretty much what I extract there. But it depends on the gold. Depends on the mercury. Depends on many different things there. So these guys that don't have any technique, even for amalgamation, they are really rudimentary in the way too. And these guys they use mercury to amalgamate the whole ore. Usually when they do this, they put a mercury in the grinding mill. This mercury is pulverized and then it goes with the tailings to their streams. But this is a very big environmental effect. But the other thing that they do, and they have the amalgam, which usually you have 50% of mercury, 50% of gold, and they take home and they burn it. They burn this at home, they burn this in uh, shops, they burn uh, in the different places there. First, because mercury is cheap, and secondly, because they don't believe that mercury has any kind of harmful effect. And yet many folks are dying off in their 40s and early 50s, and it's just normal, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's what happened there, because there are, usually people don't die immediately, you know. So the mercury is a neurotoxin, and then it goes very slowly in your brain. But the clinical effect of mercury usually is to damage the, the kidney. Some guys that are, they become really impaired with tremors and other neurological effects, but they don't die with that. They die usually with kidney problems, you know. If it's inefficient and there's better ways to extract the gold and silver, then why is it still in practice in the year 2016? <laughs> because uh, it's quick. And you know, the artisanal miners, they spend about, uh, let's see, three weeks mining there and they take this material just to be processed there. Usually they hire a processing center to do this and they want to see the results right away. They want to just grind the material, concentrate sometimes or not concentrate and just put a mercury in a ball mill and they want to see the results right away. In eight hours, they have the gold in their hands. They don't care if the gold that they're going to recover is just 30% of the gold and they leave behind 70% of the gold with the process incentives to do whatever but this 30 percent just saves uh, his life you know because this guy they're going to just take this uh, gold that he recovered they sell right away to uh, a gold shop and spend the money right away so it's going to small gold wholesalers or retailers in the area a lot of retailers in the area that's it so that's one of the major things there that united nations and other other institutions are really concerned so Gold from artisanal mining, it's being a, a source of money laundry. For a long time, uh, this is a money laundry. I saw a lot of cocaine dealers just buying gold in uh, artisanal mining areas because they want to justify the money they made. So they buy the gold and then sell the gold and then the gold now is clean. This is growing more and more, especially now that I'm working now in Colombia. That's a lot of uh, drug dealers just doing this, you know. This is in fact one of the problems that we have, but this is there for a long time. 
time, a long time, that the people just use uh, gold from artisanal money for money laundry, not just in a drug dealers, but the guys that were the legal gold, illegal money as well. You know, a lot of artisanal monies they exist because there's lack of opportunities, employment opportunities in the field in the rural areas. If you see there, most of the guys are farmers, and the farmers just to make one, two dollars per day is pretty difficult. Forty percent of the population in the world just makes less than two dollars per day. This population is in rural areas in developing countries. If you see that one gram of gold, it's forty dollars. So it makes much more sense for somebody just to quit pasture or agriculture just to work in, in artisanal money. That's the reason there, and artisanal money is growing. It's growing out of control. And the governments they say, well, the way to do this is to formalize these guys. No, the way to do this is just to provide education for these guys, to provide other types of education, just provide some way for them to be there in the rural areas. All the cities now are just growing. Then we're going to have in 2050, 80% of the population of the world just living in big centers now in big cities so we have to find a way to keep these guys in the rural areas but with uh, some employment option and mining right now is the only viable opportunity for these guys because they make much more money than to plant corn or sugarcane or whatever how are you in- injecting your solution into these communities you don't want to necessarily stop the way they are making their living or combat that metaphorical food chain but you want to educate them as far as uh, doing it in a way that's healthier and so you're able to introduce technology and how effective are you in that area? That's a good question because the thing is that there, there are many ways to do it. When we were in the United Nations and UNIDO, so we try many times just to bring to them some educational package. You know, they try to educate the guys there. We educate the trainers and the trainers, they educate the miners. This uh, works extremely well, but the thing is that the governments are not present. So the sustainability of any education, you need to have a presence of the government. And usually the governments are not in rural areas and that's the main problem so we need to find educational institutions that I can just take over this educational effort and then to educate the guys what are we doing now with the companies there especially one of the companies that are working there it's Anglo Shanti so they have a very clever way to do it so we are trying to do it just to create some educational centers there in the area that are working there at the same time just create a small mine the miners can operate the small mine just close to the big mines that they tend to build and this small mine provides money for the educational center so that's one of the ways to stop invasions because one of the major problems that are the big companies they have now is invasion they have a lot of artisanal miners entering the sites there just imagine one day you just open your window and you have 10,000 artisanal miners in your property there is no police there is no army that are gonna take these guys out and so it's complicated and the best way is just to provide education and work in partnership with them just to find a solution. We are working now in Colombia, in Ecuador, in Guyana, Honduras, in Indonesia. We are trying just to promote these training centers for artisanal miners and trying just to show that it's a way to work together with them in partnership. The big companies should be more proactive and working with them. But unfortunately, most of the mining industry in the world, they are very reactive. They just do when they have a threat, but the threat is right there at the step doors. A lot of uh, artisanal miners invading and are creating problems and an armed force, it's not controlling the guys. But Anglo is having some success in this arena, not only with wherever they have commercial projects and there's artisanal miners nearby, they're able to integrate with that community and assist them as well and create an even bigger revenue stream, 
perhaps they become a customer for some of these artisanal miners? Yes, exactly that we are trying to do there. I'm just helping them and they're just doing a good job. They can see that. You have to get a vision to do that. It's not everyone that are going to understand this stuff. Other companies, they say, well, I'm going to call the army. Call the army. Call everyone. How are we going to put a 10,000 and you're going to put a lot of guys there out of the countries? We are talking about 30 million guys. How are we going to just deal with a situation like this? We are not talking about the little guys panning for gold. You have a lot of sharks behind the scenes too. A lot of guys making a lot of money there. Is Anglo the only large company doing anything like this? Yes. So we are doing this with uh, Anglo because it's a commitment. They have a kind of a policy for sustainability. They also have problems with artisanal miners in the area. They're working there in Colombia. This is not just uh, exclusively done by Anglo Gold. A lot of uh, small companies that should just pay attention to this tremendous opportunity. There's a tremendous opportunity to small companies to get along with the artisanal miners and started just doing a small production. Of course, for $1 million per month for a big company is nothing, but for a small company, this is a small deposit. Just put in this perspective here. All we know today is just for 20 years. So more deposits are going to come. Yes, more geological deposits we're going to find. We know that all the production level we have now, if you're going to mine everything we know now, so we have gold just for 20 years. For 1,000 deposits found, just one becomes a mine in gold alone. Because the big companies, they want to have big mining operation. They don't want to have a small mining operation. A lot of a small of this 999 deposits found, so the artisanal miners are good for them, but the big companies, they don't care. So the problem with the mining, especially in the gold mining today, you have a lot of big companies and a lot of artisanal miners. It's missing something in the middle. There's a lot of opportunity for small and medium-sized companies just to fulfill this medium-sized companies that can just get along with artisanal miners and start producing gold right It sounds like an inexpensive way to actually produce gold, not just in Latin America, but let's say North America. Absolutely. In North America, that's a tremendous opportunity. There's a lot of small deposits there that were mining in the past, and people don't care anymore. Lots of them that you see in Colorado, they're small. The big companies, they don't care about the small deposits. They don't care about the tailings. But it's a tremendous opportunity. You have $1, $2 million just to invest in it, get your money back in two, three months. One of the reasons we don't allow more mining in the United States and places like California, for instance, is because of all the tailings, because of past horrific deeds on behalf of those mining companies. That's interesting situation there. There's a lot of tailings that that's left behind because the gold was very difficult to be extracted there. We are discussing in a, in a recently there with a, this uh, company, Bactec. They have one of the interesting things there because I can just use the gold leaching process with bacteria and they have this technology just to extract gold using bacteria just to open the sulfides. This is a very interesting process for use the gold that was left behind for old timers. Backtech, for instance, they developed this process that can just open the, the sulfides there with a gold associated with arsenopyrite. Arsenic, it's very damaged, it's very complicated, it's very harmful. But when you apply the right technology using bacteria, so you can just control the situation, you can just control the process to make gold accessible to be leached with cyanide later, and you can destroy everything afterwards. It's a very clean process. And I have a program here at UBC, a short courses, and I give it, it's called Small Mining is Beautiful. I think it's time for the mining industry to pay attention to small is beautiful. That's a lot of small deposits. You can just mine in a sustainable, in a clean way. So the private capital is just putting a lot of money 
in a small deposit, and I think that this is going to be the future of the mining. Small deposit could be twenty or thirty thousand ounces, which is still two or three million dollars. Yeah, even if there's uh, more than twenty thousand uh, small deposit with uh, less than fifty thousand ounces there, and it's good. There's nothing wrong with that. Gold is extremely recyclable. What I mean that nobody's going to throw away. It's a way for a lot of poor people, for instance, that they don't put a money in uh, in a bank. They just buy jewelry. That's one of the reasons that are fifty to sixty percent of the the gold in the world is used for jewelry and not for the, the rich countries but are for the poor countries you know because it's still a way to save money for bad times this is uh, is going to continue and of course with the technology that you discussed previously related to uh, back tech environmental their bacteria that eats rocks essentially you think that sort of bacteria at a foundational level can really attack the problem of toxic tailings that have been around for uh, 10 20 50 150 years around the world that's what i think and i think that when it's a small and medium-sized company, if you're a small company, if you do something wrong, it is a small mistake. That's a lot of opportunity just to test some other technology. So we can use this kind of little technology because it's a little plant. So we're going to do this with a small amount, like 100 tons per day is nothing there. But for the big guys to change, it's much more complicated. For a small little things here, like Bactac that is just doing there with bacteria, just to open the, all the tailings there that he had a lot of arsenic there and then I just uh, detox the tailings and I remove the gold and then I have everything controlled. This is for a small and medium sized thing there is a tremendous opportunity. That's a lot of small deposits that they can reach and then the geologists they walk away and the artisanal miners they're good for them. The main thing is that the entire system of money, it's upside down. So especially now when you have some kind of difficulties to sell commodities to China, it's getting more difficult and then people are not just investing in a small, medium-sized deposits. So they're just waiting, everybody's waiting for the, the price to go up again and the, they're waiting to find big deposits and drill, drill, drill. And the more they drill, they wanna just increase reserves. Reserves are good to sell dreams and then, well, why they don't produce? You start producing, and then with the money you produce, just to drill more, and drill more, you find more. But for me, it's a big mistake what the mining industry is doing now. They have to do in opposite way. They have to try to be more sustainable, to be more regional. That's pretty much what the master Fritz Schumacher wrote in his book, A Small is Beautiful. He is the father of sustainability, and he just mentioned that sustainability, it's possible when it's regional. I think everybody should just pay attention to that. Dr. Marcelo Vega, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for coming on the program today. Thank you, Alice. Thank you very much. I've been speaking with Dr. Marcelo Vega of the University of British Columbia's Institute of Mining Engineering. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com, and listen to the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes or the TuneIn Radio app. High-quality but undervalued mining stocks are finally starting to attract the attention of investors. Get the latest news and resource stock investment opportunities with a subscription to Resource World magazine. Published six times a year, Resource World features in-depth articles on mineral area plays, commodities of interest, and valuable investment insights by highly qualified market analysts, geologists, and mining journalists. Go to resourceworld.com to find out more. Once again, here's Ellis Martin. 
Join me for a conversation with Dr. Brad Thompson, CEO and President of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading as ONCY on the OTCQX. Oncolytics Biotech is a biotechnology company focused on the development of oncolytic viruses as potential therapeutics for use in a broad range of cancers. The company is conducting clinical studies using Reolice and its proprietary formulation of the human Reovirus and some of the most prevalent forms of the disease, including lung, colorectal, and pancreatic cancers. Cancer sort of taken center stage in our discussion as far as the culture and society right now with the loss recently of two cultural icons such as David Bowie and Alan Rickman. And why do we have this disease? Cancer really is a disease of aging. Your immune system when you're a child and to early adulthood is really good and it gets rid of things that don't belong. So if you get an infection, it takes care of that. If you get something that doesn't belong like a cancer, the body will recognize that and get rid of it. Everybody who's listening to this has had a cancer in their life, but whether you get the disease cancer is a very different story. So as you get older, your immune system starts to die off and there's no other way of putting it. And so when you're my age and your age, you know, we probably have half or less of the immune system that we had. And once it drops below a certain threshold, and nobody really knows what that threshold is, people start getting cancer as a disease. And so it's really mostly, I mean, you get it when you're younger for other reasons, but mostly a disease of aging. And as our population ages, you would just expect to see what is exactly happening, which is more and more people are getting cancer or their relatives are getting cancer, their friends are getting cancer, their acquaintances are getting cancer. And now the person they meet in the store down the corner of the street is getting cancer. It's an epidemic, but it's the result largely of aging. Now in younger populations, we're actually starting to see an increase of certain cancers as well. And people are starting to think that's our lifestyle, you know, stress-related and that. I mean, a couple of really bad sleeps in a row actually seriously suppress your immune system. It doesn't take much to take the edge off your immune system. I mean, we're making great progress in a number of areas. I mean, some of the childhood leukemias, which a generation ago were absolute killers, are almost kind of like, huh, leukemia, and we took care of it. Things like cervical cancer. I mean, we can prevent cervical cancer from occurring in most cases just by vaccinating children. I mean, there's been some great advances. We're fighting against the increased prevalence and incidents happening out there. What is your company doing to fight cancer? I know you've had a lot of success You've treated over 1,100 people across North America. How does this company stand out from everyone else who has a cancer story right now? Our agent really does two things. The first thing it does is focuses on reducing the tumor burden in the patient, and that's based on the genetics of the tumors. I guess fortunately for us and unfortunately for people getting cancer, a lot of the causes of cancer, which are genetic in the end, are really exploited by our agent, which is a live agent. It's a virus called the Reovirus, and its trademark name is Reolysin. And Reolysin, as its first activity, will infect the tumor, and if the genetics are right, will kill that tumor. And so it's just a direct tumor-reducing burden thing. And the interesting part on that is, and that's why this is kind of unique, is, is that as patients fail therapy, like so if your first line, which is the first time you're treated, or second line, you're treated for the second time, the more times you fail therapy, that actually enriches for those mutations, those genetic changes. And so paradoxically, real license seems to reduce tumor better in patients that are later on in the process, which is backwards to pretty much everything. Normally, the more times the tumor is being treated, the less likely it is you'll get a response. All indications so far is that real license does the opposite. So you're more likely to have a, a patient who's failed at everything and get a response than you are on a first-time treatment, which is very unique and very helpful for those patients. The second thing that real license does is it interacts with the immune system. I mean, that's the new wave in oncology today is to harness the immune system to do what it normally does most of the time, which is get rid of cancer. And so you take that tenth of a percent of patients or people in those cases because they're not patients yet that you know normally their immune system takes care of it, but that tenth of a percent of the time it doesn't and that's why you get cancer. The real license actually works in concert with the immune system and with all these new drugs that's coming out that are called checkpoints 
plant inhibitors. It works with those agents and it works with the immune system to actually enhance the immune system's ability to deal with patients. Now, we actually have started two clinical studies now with two different agents. One is looking at pediatric glioma patients, kids, kids with brain cancer. We're actually directly enhancing the immune system with an agent called GMCSF, which has been used for many years, GMCSF and Real Lysin together. And we've been treating patients since the fall at the Mayo Clinic with that. And we've just started enrolling patients with another combination, but this case is Real Lysin with a checkpoint inhibitor, and that's in pancreatic cancer patients. And so we're doing two different things with the immune system. That's really kind of the second thing that Real Lysin does, but that makes it very unique. The fact that patients that are further along seem to do better with Rio than earlier patients. Also, this immune harnessing thing is quite unique. I've been speaking with Dr. Brant Thompson, CEO and President of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading as ONCY on the OTCQX. Listen to the segment again on our website or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. Remember, all of the companies you're hearing about today have paid us for the opportunity to be reviewed by you on this program. Do your own research before investing in anything mentioned here. Start by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Join me for a conversation with Eric Fear, President and CEO of Silvercrest Metals, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SIL. Silvercrest is a Canadian precious metals exploration company headquartered in Vancouver, B.C. that's focused on new discoveries, value-added acquisitions, and targeting production in Mexico's historic precious metals district, including three properties in prolific Sonora State. The company was formed following the acquisition of Silvercrest Mines by First Majestic Silver Corporation. Eric, welcome back to the program. You've just released news announcing the rehabilitation of Silvercrest Las Chispas Mine in Sonora State, Mexico. What exactly does this mean? What it means is it's all part of our exploration plan, and this was the plan for 2016 was to get in underground, start mapping and sampling. We need to fully understand the beast that's in front of us. It's a big system. I actually was down on site a couple weeks ago. I spent two days walking a lot of the underground and the surface, and I only got to see about a quarter of the district. This is a lot bigger than I had even imagined. You know, you need to have management boots on the ground to really appreciate these things, and I was there, and now we got a team of guys and a crew underground. They're cleaning it out. There's over six kilometers of underground ground workings, of which we get about two kilometers access to currently. We've done quite a bit of sampling. These are the first results from underground. So some pretty impressive grades that are already being established as potential. Really can't say near term because it has to be fully evaluated, but when you're dealing with these type of systems, this is an underground project right now. Since you have a lot of access to it, you can go in, you can sample these things, and if you can get three sides sampled, then you can start talking about potential reserves. When you're talking about reserves, it means they're economic, and then you can start producing from those reserves. The grades are listed in the news release itself, and they seem quite high. Well, the average production grade historically between 1880 and 1930 was about 15 grams per ton gold and 1,700 grams per ton silver, 1.7 kilos per ton. This would be absolutely the highest grade mine 
in Mexico that I know of if you had some substantial amount of tons that you could pull into a resource and then a reserve. I could only aspire to get those kind of grades. Right now, there is mines that are producing in Mexico in the 600 to 700 grams per ton type numbers from a silver equivalency standpoint. But anything above that would definitely be the highest grade tons that would be produced in Mexico. How are you going to be able to determine how much ore is in the ground or does it not matter at first? Well, we need to better understand the system. You had to appreciate that this project has had no eyes on it for over 80 years. It was locked up in a legal battle for several years. There were a couple companies that came in during the 1990s and the early 2000s to try to do a deal. They were unable to do it because of the legal disputes on it. Therefore, not much attention was paid to the project. We were able to negotiate over the last two years to settle the legal issues and to basically tie up most of that district. And now the effort is going to be to fully evaluate it geologically and from an economic standpoint. It'll give us 2016 to really see if there's going to be a substantial discovery there. You got to get in and you got to sample these things. Just very fortunate that we have a lot of access already. If you tried to build the Las Chispas right now in six kilometers of underground workings, I mean, we're already talking 10 to 20 million dollars in today's value that's already established for access to the deposit. That's quite attractive right there. We got a big leg up to get access. So you go in and you sample these things underground and you do some drilling. The drilling could be from surface or underground. And this is the guidelines you need in order to establish, number one, a resource, and then put some metallurgy to it, look at your permitting, and establish a reserve and see if you have enough of a mass in order to either build your mill or ship it off-site. No one would spend that kind of money, $20 million, to develop a system in this environment. Would anybody do it? I don't think so. Like I said, this is very similar to the history behind when we did the discovery at the Santa Elena mine for Silvercrest mines. There was over a kilometer of underground workings there. We negotiated that deal in 2005, and we announced our first discovery there in 2006 within 12 months of closing that deal. So we're just trying to do it again, Ellis, uh, with Los Chispas. We had great access at Santa Elena. You could get underground. You could see it. You could sample it from underground. We drilled 19 holes. We declared our uh, first discovery at Santa Elena, and it got the market's attention. We just want to do that again. Any chance you'll parlay this out to someone like First Majestic or Yamana, anyone else down the road, or would you stay in as a producer? Well, throughout my 30-plus years of experience now, you can fantasize about that, but you have to be willing to move forward with this site that you're going to put it into production. And then it just becomes too attractive and someone's got to take it. And if they're going to take it, they're going to pay for it. And that's great for our Silvercrest shareholders. Or you're prepared to put it into production and you do it. And we did that at Santa Elena. Had a lot of success in doing that. I'm ready to do that at Los Chispas again. I'm a shareholder of Silvercrest. So I'm out there to protect the shareholders. I got a lot of skin in the game. And if the deal's too good to be true from someone wants to purchase Los Chispas, then come at it and see if we can negotiate. Speaking of shares, what's the share structure like for this company? 
just under 40 million shares out right now. Of that 50%, we pretty much know where it's at. The other 50% came with the Silvercrest Mines and First Majestic merger. It is from a retail standpoint, and some institutions, actually quite a few institutions, stayed in after that merger. So they come with that 50% that has kind of a question mark on it. But management itself has about 15% of the current ownership in the company. Institutionally, we're at about 18%. When can we expect to see more news? We're going to start our drilling program here probably within one to two weeks, so just call it mid-March. And it takes a month to six weeks to start getting results. So I'd look for the next news release on Las Chispas probably mid-April, and that's when you'll start seeing what we're hitting from a drilling standpoint. I may have a news release out before that just to update everybody on the rehabilitation and any more significant intercepts that we're sampling underground and continuity. It's really going to come down to now telling the story how it develops and really what this beast is going to look like as we continue to do mapping sampling. There is an event that's going to occur in March for us at Los Chispas. We're going to open up uh, part of an area that hasn't been looked at for 80 years. And this area was specifically developed in the late 20s. And from the historic reports that we've read, a lot of it didn't get mined, but the infrastructure is already in place. So that could be an exciting event as we open up those workings and get into them and start sampling and mapping. And There could be some immediate high-grade tons out in front of us. I could only hope that we have some really high-grade stuff like was previously produced out in front of us, and then you're going to stand there scratching your head, well, what are we going to do with this? You know, there's immediate value, and that's when you start knocking on First Majestic or Yamana's doors to see if they want to treat it. That could happen in 2016. No promises. I don't know. Is it possible that when you open up something like that, you can get an immediate idea of what you might find just by looking? Well, we already have a good idea on one of the veins because we have the mine maps historically when they were about ready to shut down. So it's already in the history books, in our history books, and we've ground-proof that map that we have now, and it's pretty much exactly as it is on the historic map. This map is from the 1920s. So of the two kilometers we have access to right now, we've proofed that map, and it's proven 100% correct so far. So I think we know what's out in front of us. It's just getting into it, taking a look at it, making sure it's safe to work in the area, and then it all comes down to sampling it, put volumes around it in ounces, and see if it works out. So this would potentially be a great time if you're sitting on the fence to consider investing in Silvercrest, if you're looking for a company that's about to become a producer in this interesting market. I'm an investor too, Ellis, and when I go out to look at investments, I put them in proven management, which Silvercrest Metals has. Good, solid projects that are not crippling the company with huge payments or huge NSRs. We don't have any of that out in front of us. The acquisition cost for Los Chispas is $4 million over three to five years. I kind of give a range there because Los Chispas is in several different land packages. 
so negotiated with those families that were under legal dispute in order to settle that. But I've paid about $50,000 so far to take a look, and I'm not committed to pay any more if I don't like what I see over the next year. We'll spend about a million to $1.2 million this year to evaluate and look for a discovery. And it's got to make economic sense to me in order for it to be a discovery. There's proven management, no huge commitment by the company. You're in a great jurisdiction. I still love working in Mexico. Same time zone we're in most of the year. Those are easy to manage. I can fly down and be on site the same day from Vancouver. All important things, uh, great infrastructure, good people, good communities that understand what you're doing. The leg up we have with Los Chispas is we've already established ourselves with a very good reputation in the area, having discovered, studied, financed, constructed, and had free cash flow when we did the merger with First Majestic on Santa Elena, which is in the same neighborhood. Eric, I've enjoyed our conversation. Once again, thanks for joining me today on the program. Always a pleasure. Thank you. I've been speaking with Eric Fear, CEO and President of Silvercrest Metals. Silvercrest Metals trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SIL. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com, and download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes or TuneIn Radio. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. They paid us for the privilege. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.